Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, and as we study it, I pray, Lord, that your word would speak to us, that uh, we would turn our hearts more to you, Lord, that we would uh, see what you would have us do in light of this text that we'll be studying today. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would be glorified in our study today, and that you would be exalted in our lives as a result of uh, studying your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Merry Christmas, I guess. It's almost Christmas. Uh, we're a few days away now, and uh, so that means we're, we're kind of coming to a close on this study, although we will have the last installment for this year uh, on Christmas Eve. Um, like I said, there are so many reasons. We're studying the reasons that Jesus came and took on flesh, and there are just so many reasons. Uh, I may just continue this study next year and the year after that. I don't know. We'll have to see. Um, one of the things that when I preach, you guys have probably noticed I, I, I do uh, fairly regularly, probably at least once a sermon. I'll throw a quote out there by some pastor or theologian, just somewhere in my sermon, just to share their perspective on the passage or uh, maybe something they said about what the, the principle in the passage is, is demonstrating. I don't know if you, uh, if you realize this or not, but when I do that, it's not just because I'm at a loss for words, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to use their words to make the point that I'm, uh, that I can't make, uh, Sometimes maybe that's part of it. Maybe they articulate it way better than I could. But it's also that I just, I have a deep, um, deep appreciation and respect for those who have traveled the road uh, before me and the way that they've helped me uh, through their writings, through their preaching, etc., how they've helped me to have a, a deeper and a fuller appreciation of the Bible and theology. And of course, some of the names that you guys will often hear me uh, throw out, some of the people I, I love to quote, uh, Chuck Swindoll, that's a big one. Charles Spurgeon, I, I, I love reading Charles Spurgeon. Uh, John MacArthur, I'm a big fan of John MacArthur. Uh, Ray Steadman, Paul Washer, uh, he's another one. I, I absolutely love Paul Washer. Uh, sometimes Francis Chan, John Piper, all, all these guys. And what I see, when I, when I watch these guys who are still alive, when I watch them preach, when I listen to them preach, I say, man, that guy loves Jesus. That, that guy really, really loves Jesus. And it, and it does something to me. It, it gives me a deeper appreciation for, uh, for the text, yes. But then I see, wow, this guy has a love and a passion for Jesus that I sure wish I had. I, I want to have that kind of passion for Jesus, too. And, of course, I also like to quote from some of the, the great leaders of the Reformation, guys like Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, and others. And see, one of the lessons that I've learned over the years is that there are three things that are going to help us grow in Christ-likeness. There are three things that help us become more and more and more like Jesus. Number one is a given. It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that, you're, you're, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. Uh, so the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is one. Number two, spending time in God's Word. Spending time reading God's Word regularly. Now, some days I understand you're, you're busy, but honestly, the more you study God's Word, the more transformed you'll be by it. So that's number two. And number three, spending time with God's people. Spending time with God's people. Serving the body, and allowing the body to serve you, and learning to imitate them insofar as they imitate Christ. Now, we need to clarify that third point, because some people will say, well, you know, you shouldn't desire to be like anybody other than Jesus, and that, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's also true that it can be, and often is, good and acceptable to aspire to be like somebody else who, in some way or another, seems to be a step in the right direction towards Christ's likeness. So insofar as they imitate Christ, it's okay to imitate those people. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. He's talking about him and his team that was there in Thessalonica. You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. 
That's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. See, there were people in Thessalonica who were so preoccupied with the idea of the rapture and Jesus' return that they just stopped working. And so they were a burden to everybody else. And Paul said, you know, when we came to you guys... And we didn't want to be a burden to you, so what did we do? We worked. We worked so that we could earn our keep and not be a burden to anybody else. And so he's saying we were an example in that sense for you. Uh, that's why, also why the author of Hebrews wrote this. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. There's a lot of wisdom in looking to and learning from those who have traveled the same journey of faith that we do. That's why Paul instructed the Philippians. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's why he said to the Corinthians, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Those last words are key. As I am of Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. So, insofar as somebody imitates Christ, there's wisdom in imitating that people, that person, and, and learning from their example. There is folly and, and, and foolishness, uh, a, a void of wisdom, conversely, in imitating someone in ways that do not imitate Christ, that do not uh, resemble Christ at all. And the Bible is filled with stories of men and women who were just like you and me. The, the, the human experience. They, they lived it too. They saw pitfalls. They saw traps. There's nothing new under the sun. There's no temptation that, that we have that is unique to us that they didn't have you know, even the slightest bit of temptation for back then. So there's a lot for us to learn from their lives because a lot of them gained or demonstrated godly wisdom in their decisions and in their, in their life. And if there's one thing that demonstrates anyone's godly wisdom, it's that they worship or worshipped, in the case of people in the Bible, the Lord. It's that they worship the Lord. And so as we continue in our Rediscovering Christmas series, looking at the reasons that Jesus took on flesh, I want us to understand that one of those reasons, one of the reasons that Jesus stepped out of eternity and took on human flesh was in order to receive worship. He stepped out of eternity in order to receive worship. I want us to look at some people who went to great lengths to worship Jesus. If you turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Matthew, we'll take a look at this group of people, men, who were collectively referred to as uh, either the Magi or the wise men, depending on your translation. I use the ESV, it says wise men in there, but some of the other translations do say Magi. We'll talk about that in a minute. So we start in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These wise men are referred to as such or as magi. Uh, The word magi uh, is from the Greek word which the Babylonians or the Chaldeans gave to their most Uh, intelligent people. That's what they would call their scientists, their scholars, uh, and their chemists, which, uh, which were kind of what we would call sorcerers. Uh, that's, by the way, the word magi, M-A-G-I, is where we get the word magic from. So, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, most magicians are just illusionists, but then there's a different type where there's like witchcraft and sorcery involved and it's bad. So a few things to note about uh, these Magi or, or wise men. First of all, they are not part of Christ's birth story per se. They're not exactly showing up at the time that Jesus is born. They probably showed up when Jesus was about two years old, as we'll see as we go through this passage. All we know is that the second chapter starts off with the words, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
So that's opening you know, a, a wide spectrum of time, but it, it is about at the two-year point. But we know that he was born in Bethlehem in a manger, but in verse 11 we're going to see that Joseph and Mary were living in a house by the time these wise men arrived. Uh, coming from the east, possibly as far as the Orient, some people speculate that they came from Iran or Iraq. Either way, you know, it's a, it's a long journey for them. It would have taken a lot of time. And this explains why Jesus is called a small child or a young child and not a baby when we get to verse 11. He's not a baby anymore. He's a small child. He's what we would call a toddler. So Jesus was probably around two years of age by the time they arrive in Bethlehem. They're not really part of the birth narrative. We'll cover this in uh, greater depth in a, in a few moments. Secondly, it's a common assumption that there were how many wise men? Uh, yeah, holding up his hand. Three. Three. We, we sing, we three kings. Uh, and that's a common uh, misunderstanding. Scripture never tells us how many of them there were. There, there may have been two. There may have been three. Uh, there may have been 300. We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us how many uh, uh, of them there were. The idea that, uh, that there were three seems to come from the fact that they bring three gifts. Uh, like they would each bring three, you know, a gift of their own, so three separate gifts. But apparently, the the detail, you know, how many people there were, how many uh, men, wise men there were, um, is a detail that just isn't important for us to know. Third, these men weren't kings, so uh, the song "We Three Kings" it, it's it's uh, doesn't exactly line up with the Bible. We. Again, it's kind of a tradition thing. We, we pass it down from generation to generation that these were kings, but they were not kings. Nowhere in all of Scripture are these men referred to as kings, and yet, you know, we, we sing the hymn, We Three Kings, uh, it, which is a great song. You know, I, I still enjoy it, uh, even though these men aren't said to have been kings, and I think it's, it's perfectly fine because the song still points us to celebrate the birth of Jesus, and that's what worship is about. It's about worshiping and celebrating Jesus in some way. So, as if we haven't already, you know, debunked enough misguided speculation that's surrounded this story of the wise men, we should also note that there's a lot of speculation and confusion about what this star was. What was it that they saw exactly? Now, some people will speculate. And that's all it is, is speculation, that it was a comet or that it was a comet's tail that guided them on their journey. Uh, some, some, some great scientists have argued that there was this extremely rare light that was produced when two, two planets in the constellation came into a certain rare alignment, uh, a certain relation to one another, and produced this weird light that pointed them right to Jesus' home. Uh, others have argued that these men were probably... Uh, astrologers or astronomers who had seen evidence in the stars to explain uh, what the star really, you know, what was going on, that, that there was a, a king being born. And while I appreciate the science community and the, the, uh, the astronomers community trying to explain what the star really was, that can be very, very dangerous when you're reading scripture. And so I, I don't exactly appreciate anyone's attempt to explain away the supernatural. In other words, I'm, I'm pretty uncomfortable with people trying to write God out of the story and to attribute an event to nature when scripture attributes it to God. And this seems to be a case where it's attributed to God and a lot of people try to attribute it to nature. If a person has a completely secular, naturalistic worldview, then of course God didn't do it. It had to be some kind of thing happening up in the stars. But the Christian worldview has to at least allow for the possibility that this was the direct and unique one-time work of God, what we would call a miracle. And that's what I believe this is. I don't believe that it was a star a literal um, star, like a constellation or, or a comet or anything like that. I don't believe it was any of that. It's, the only explanation that makes sense is that this was a miracle. How much sense would it, be, would, it, would, it, would it make for us to follow a comet 
I mean, the comet's like that way, you know, or, or it's up there or over there or something like that. Uh, how much would it, uh, sense would it make for us to follow the tail? Um, which direction would it take us? I mean, we've seen these types of things in the cosmos. We've, we've seen these huge comets with, with huge uh, tails, uh, but nobody is ever tempted to follow it. You ever notice that? You know, when astronomers talk about all these, uh, you know, like Halley's Comet when it came, did anybody, like, start following it? Uh, you know, because I, I, I've never heard of somebody, especially an intelligent person, trying to follow a falling star. So I just don't see how a comet or a conjunction of two planets would possibly lead a group of wise men to the exact, precise, correct location of Jesus. And furthermore, they knew that this was the birth of the king of the Jews. How are the stars going to tell somebody that this is the birth of the king of the Jews? I mean, I, I guess God could have, you know, written it out, you know, with, with stars. He could have done that, but does that seem likely? I don't think it seems likely at all, because it would have said something about that. But they know that this is the king of the Jews being born. My guess is it's from the Old Testament, but my guess is that they, they knew uh, the Old Testament. These guys were from Babylon, and there's a good chance they got uh, Daniel's manuscript and had studied when the Messiah was going to be coming, roughly. And so they had an idea of when, uh, when to look for something, but they're led to the exact location. And so I think it was God. I don't think it was a, a literal star. I don't think it was a literal comet or anything like that. I think it was literally God leading them to Jesus. So let's not make any mistake about this. The wise men had not come to honor him and pay tribute to him. They had come to worship him. And that involves honoring him and, and paying tribute to him, but it's much more than that. So you can honor and pay tribute to somebody without giving them your heart. But when you worship, it's about your heart, and they're there to worship. Matthew doesn't tell us uh, you know, exactly how they knew um, who this was that they were coming to worship, but I doubt that they got that information from looking at the stars. This makes a very clear implication from us. They knew that this was no ordinary king. They knew that this wasn't just some earthly ruler. They knew that this was God in the flesh. And as they come to Herod and stand before him, I have to imagine that Herod was totally insulted. See, in the Roman worldview, and in Herod's worldview, they should have come to worship him, if anyone. You know, they, they spent probably two years, a year or two years, following this star, following to, to find Jesus. But they didn't come to see Herod. They didn't spend two years coming to see him. They didn't come to worship him, or to honor him. And so we continue reading in verses 3 and 4. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now why would this have troubled Herod so deeply that he would call a meeting with all these religious scholars and religious leaders of the Jews. I think he probably viewed it as a very clear uh, danger and a threat to his own authority and his own position. And then, isn't it interesting that all of Jerusalem is troubled with him? All of Jerusalem. This religious city is troubled with King Herod. You mean they're not filled with excitement? Wow, oh, we didn't even know. The king, the king of kings has been born here. No, they're not excited. They're troubled. They're scared. Maybe because suddenly they realize that this child who should rightfully have been celebrated and worshipped instead had an obscure and inglorious birth among them. I mean, if God is going to step out of eternity and take on flesh, shouldn't that be celebrated by his people? Shouldn't they show up in masses to worship him? Shouldn't every crown and every scepter be dropped at his feet? Of course they should. 
Of course they should, but the reality of the situation is reflected in John's testimony. He wrote this in John chapter 1, verse 10. He said, he, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And I suspect that the people of Jerusalem are troubled because they're not even sure which child in their region could possibly be the one that the wise men are referring to. They had no idea that God himself had taken on flesh and was among them. And so I suspect that putting it as troubled, saying that they were troubled, is a little bit of a misnomer. That's a nice way of saying they were scared. And I suspect that if the unbelieving world today had any idea, had any idea, that God had sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the sins of anyone and everyone who would place their faith in him alone. If they had any grasp, even the slightest bit of the reality of that truth, and what it implies about those who continue to reject Jesus, they would be troubled by that truth as well. And to call it troubled is putting it mildly. Wherever the gospel is preached, you're bound to run into people who are troubled by it. This is the same Jesus, by the way, who used this exact same word, troubled, when he told his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I have to wonder, as as Herod calls this council together, I have to wonder if this is the first time in his life that Herod the king has ever sought religious counsel. He feels threatened by this mysterious news that these wise men have brought, and he wants to get to the bottom of it. So he calls these religious leaders, these scholars, together to help him. Sadly, that's far too often the reality with us, too. For a lot of people, it's the same reality for a lot of people. When, when they're troubled, when life gets difficult or scary, they'll come to hear what they want to hear. But something tells me that Herod doesn't want to hear what it is that he really needs to hear. He only wants to know where Christ had been born. He doesn't want to know anything about why the Jews should have been looking for him just doesn't want to know. He only wants to know what's going to make him feel better. That's scary. Let's continue. Matthew uh, 2, verses 5 and 6. They told him, the the religious, uh, religious leaders told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They probably had it memorized. They didn't even need to go get their Bibles. They had, they had this memorized. How did they know where to find this king of the Jews who had been born? Because they knew the scriptures. They, they knew the Old Testament. They got it from Micah in the Old Testament. They're quoting from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He told Israel exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. And Matthew, by the way, is sure to include that in his testimony. And uh, I am personally of the persuasion that the book of Matthew was most likely the first gospel to be written because it was written to a Jewish audience who were the very first Christians, Jews. Uh, So it makes sense that 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 would be the first one written. And Matthew includes things like this because he wants his Jewish readers to see that Jesus alone fulfills multiple descriptive prophecies from the Old Testament, including ones that nobody, 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 nobody could possibly have any control over, such as the location of our birth. How many of you guys determined where you wanted to be born? And nobody does. You can't. It's impossible. Who controls that? I guess the way you answer that depends on your worldview. If you're secular, you say your parents determine where you're born. But if you're using a Christian worldview... God 
is the one who determines when and where each person is born. So if you have a biblical worldview, your answer is God. But nobody would say that it's the individual, right? That's, that's for sure. But that was one of the prophecies that was fulfilled. And I love the way that Micah describes Jesus in this prophecy. He links the kingly lineage of David as a ruler, as a, as a king, with the fact that this ruler would be a shepherd. A king who's a shepherd. Totally unheard of. Totally unheard of. The shepherd was the person who was probably, the you know, if you were to, to have a social hierarchy, shepherd would be right near the bottom. The shepherd was the person who did the dirty work that nobody else who had any dignity would want to do. They'd rather just hire somebody else to do it. They were rough people who weren't respected. I'm pretty sure they, they usually smelled bad, although I couldn't tell you. I don't have a sense of smell. But I would imagine that if you're working with sheep all day, people don't exactly want to be around you. The king, conversely, is at the top of the social hierarchy, and Jesus is both. Jesus, the Messiah, is both. He's the king who refers to himself as the good shepherd. And I find it interesting that these so-called religious people, probably the type of people that you can see on the History Channel today. I find it interesting that these, these religious people knew the scriptures, but they didn't go out to seek the Christ for themselves. They had the information, but they didn't have any interest in acting on that information. What a tragic picture of the condition of their hearts. It served them well to know the scriptures because, hey, even, even this earthly king wanted, wanted to, to call them together. He wanted to talk to them. He wanted to know what they thought. But it didn't serve them well to turn their hearts to the king of kings. It didn't serve them well to humble themselves. All they had to offer God was lip service. Their hearts, sadly, were turned away from God. And this is why we have to be more than just hearers of the word. It's so easy to just come in here every week and and hear what we've got to say, you know, go through the study. And yeah, you walk out the door and you just, okay, that's there. and, And this is the world out here. No, we have to be more than hearers of the word. We have to be hearers and doers of the word. The fact that they didn't go out and seek Jesus for themselves says everything we need to know about them, about the condition of their hearts. Here are these Gentiles. These wise men are Gentiles. And here they've traveled across the land for years, across the desert to find Jesus. And then here are these religious people who wouldn't even go across their backyard to find Jesus. How far would you go? How far would you go to worship Jesus? The Apostle John summarizes this whole thing that's going on in their hearts this way. He says in John chapter 1, verse 11, he said, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So having gathered the information that he was looking for, Herod responds, verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What we see about Herod here is that there is nothing but wickedness in him. He doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus. He wants to eliminate the competition. He looks like, you know, he's maybe the the main bad guy of this part of the story, but the truth is, it's not just him. It's not just him. The the, the thing that set him apart is he has the power to do something about it. When When he feels troubled, he can act on it. He can do something about it. Everyone in this part of the story, except the wise men, are feeling troubled. Herod's the one who has the power to do something about it. So Herod claims that he wants to worship the child, but the reality is he wants to eliminate the competition. Now, I preach 
regularly about how there's this, this tendency that all of us have to allow different gods, false gods, idols, to compete for our hearts. Every god that's competing for our hearts, whatever it is, whether it's money, whether it's pleasure, whether, whether it's entertainment, whether it's uh, respect, whatever it is, every god that competes for our hearts would have us do the exact same thing. Eliminate the competition by getting Jesus out of the picture. And let me tell you, it is absolutely heartbreaking for me when I see people doing that. When I see people pushing Jesus out and making room for the competition. And so, yeah, Herod, he's a pretty wicked guy. He's a pretty bad guy. But the truth is that he's really not all that different from you and me apart from the saving grace of God. Let's continue. Let's wrap up this passage. After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So clearly, this is not a consolation. This is not a, a, a literal star out of the sky. It's nothing that's the, that you can find record of in the cosmos. It comes up and it goes before them and it stops as soon as it gets over the place where Jesus was. And there aren't any comets that do that. They just keep going and going and going. This is supernatural. This is a miracle. And it just stops over where the baby was, right? No, it says the child It's a child. It's a different word. He's not a baby. He's a child. Different words for different uh, ages of children. So Jesus is probably close to two years old at this point. Herod had wanted to know when they had seen this star, when it started uh, summoning them, you know, drawing them, uh, when it started leading them. And we don't get uh, to find out what the wise men told him. It doesn't tell us precisely right here directly, but if we put two and two together, that is, if we consider that Herod's response just a little bit later in response to this time frame is to order the slaughter of all males two and under, we can reasonably estimate that Jesus was about two years old at this point. What do you think was going through the minds of Mary and Joseph when these wise men, I mean, Joseph's a carpenter. You know, they're, they're not exactly upper echelon of society or you know, upper tier society, nothing like that. And, and here are these, these wise men, these greatly respected people who are at the top of the social hierarchy show up at their door and they say, hi, is Jesus here? You know, uh, you know, <laughs> you know what's, what's going through Mary and Joseph's mind? Uh, as far as we can tell, as far as we can, you know, ascertain from the scriptures, this was really the first time that anyone other than the shepherds, when Jesus was born, the shepherds, you know, go to, go to worship Jesus. This is the first time that anyone other than the shepherds had come to honor and worship Jesus. It was a long And it was a dangerous journey for these wise men, but they arrived at their destination. And Matthew says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Doesn't that sound redundant? It's like, what do you rejoice exceedingly with? You know, much sorrow, much uh, depression, uh, much melancholy. Of course it's with joy. But he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, You know, I I think if he had just said they rejoiced exceedingly, we'd get the point, right? Right? But he didn't think, Matthew didn't think that it would be sufficient to describe their joy just by leaving it at that. So he adds, with great joy. In other words, this is a joy that is so great, he can't even put it into words. And joy is certainly a quality that Jesus did come to bring us, maybe next year. Uh, We'll talk about that. Uh, It is a quality that he came to bring us, a joy that's found only in him, which is different than happiness. Joy is something that's much, much, much deeper. It's a joy, this joy that they have is a joy that's like no other. 
Now, scholars have, have tried to make sense of, of the symbolism in these gifts that the wise men brought. The first one's obvious. They bring him gold. Why? Because they, they realize that he's a king. And what do you bring to a king? You, you want to bring him gold. Gold is uh, probably what you would call the, the metal of choice if you are royalty. Frankincense and myrrh are a little bit more puzzling to scholars, uh, especially in consideration of the fact that myrrh was used in burials. And so I want to issue a warning here. It's very dangerous to allegorize the story, what you read in the Bible. Everything doesn't symbolize something necessarily. I mean, sometimes it does, and the text will make that obvious when it does. But sometimes it's literal. So there's, there's danger in trying to allegorize, you know, turn it into an allegory. This represents this, this represents this, this represents that. Sometimes, but not always. So be careful with that. But I believe that there was actually a good and, and practical and, and logical reason that they brought uh, frankincense and myrrh. It's because that's what you brought to a baby. That's what you brought. You, you can actually find myrrh in a lot of our skin products today. It's in creams and lotions and things like that. Ointments. It, it helps treat the skin. It's also a disinfectant, an antiseptic. It's a fungicide. You know, it has all kinds of practical uses for for uh, for, for yeast infections. It'll, it'll treat that. It's a fungicide. So, you know, what do you bring to a baby who, um, you know, today, uh, you know, might have what we would call diaper rash? You, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if you're a wise man, you'd bring some ointment, you know, so that, you know, to relieve their discomfort. So if this symbolizes anything at all, all it shows us is the human side of Jesus. That he would have had skin irritations. He would have had sicknesses. He, 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 was, he had physical issues just like any other child. He faced the same trials and temptations that we do today. He would have had physical issues just like any other child. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And thus he was worthy, even as a child, of the worship of the wise men. Their worship, by the way, is really the most significant gift that they brought. So these wise men brought lavish gifts to Christ because they understood that he was worthy, that Christ Jesus was worthy of worship and sacrifice. And wise people still do that. It's an issue of realizing that God alone is worthy. It's an issue of accepting the fact that he's the one who's the giver of every good gift and that everything we have, every material possession that we have, Every non-material possession that we have, it's all his giving. And that's a really hard one for us in our culture, as, as Americans, to come to terms with. Because the American dream is to work hard so that you get all this stuff and you deserve that stuff. You earned that stuff. The American dream is work hard, earn everything. But that's not how the gospel works. In fact, that whole mentality is diametrically opposed to the gospel. None of us deserves the grace of God. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We'll never deserve it. And yet he gives it to us. We say that it's easy to give to God when times are good, but we'll struggle to give to God when times are hard. But evidence actually speaks to the contrary. You know, I've, I've had people uh, tell, tell me or, or email me, you know, Pastor, I'll, I'll start giving when I have more money. And I don't want to sound cold-hearted. I, I, I don't want to sound jaded. But you know what I think when I hear that? No, you won't. No, you won't. Because it's not an issue of ability. It's never an issue of ability. It's, a de- it's an issue of, of desire. It's an issue of the will. It's an issue of the desire to make sacrifices. It's about a willingness to make sacrifices. Back in 2007... The economy in this country was strong, right? Man, that was the height of the the housing market bubble. Man, people were making money hand over fist. They were making so much money. We were such a wealthy country. 
But studies in 2007 also revealed that fewer than 5% of churchgoers were tithing. Fewer than 5% when the economy was at its strongest. No wonder thousands and thousands of churches closed their doors when the recession of 2008 hit. Serious stuff. R.C. Sproul says the Magi did not, uh, gave the Magi gave not knowing about the cross or the resurrection. We know what Jesus did, and the application, while painful, is clear. Give your best to the Master, and do not ever rob God. End quote. What can you bring? You can bring him the sacrifice of love, the treasure of honor, bring him obedience, devotion, self-sacrifice, service. Bring him your heart. Bring him your heart and the rest. I mean, everything else, all of the rest. If you give him your heart, the rest will follow. Wise people still seek Jesus. They still seek to know him better. They still seek to walk closely with him. They still seek to worship him. They still seek to become more and more like him. They still are willing to make sacrifices for the sake of honoring and glorifying him. The prophet Isaiah said this, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. I have a newsflash for us. He's near. He's here right now. He he is near. So if you haven't sought him, seek him now. And even if you've been seeking him, continue. Keep seeking him. You and I won't find him in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. People are comfortable with the Jesus who was born in a manger. Boy, he, he's not threatening. Little baby in a, in a manger. How cute. You know, there are animals you know, all around him. You know, it, it's such a sweet little scene. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. But he's not there anymore. He's not in that manger anymore. Where is he? He's in heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus came to live as one of us, to serve, to die, to raise again, to ascend into heaven where he draws people to himself today. The wise men were led by this star, but the Bible describes Jesus as our bright and morning star in 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 and Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Where do we learn to, to follow this Bright and morning star by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, by spending time studying God's word, and by spending time with God's people in corporate worship. Do not underestimate the importance of those other two. Number one is a given. We all know that. Got to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But don't Please, please, don't ever underestimate the importance of spending time studying God's word or spending time with God's people. All I can do is beg you not to view those things as optional. And yet you and I both know that it can be very tempting sometimes to view them exactly that way as something that we'll do if and, and when we've got more time, when our schedule opens up, when we don't have so many things demanding all of our attention, when the truth is, no, you won't. We always act in accordance with our priorities. And that's just the way humans work. That's part of the human experience. Why did Jesus never sin? Because honoring God, glorifying God, being obedient to the Father. Those were always, always, always his top priorities. There wasn't one one millionth of a second where he strayed away from those priorities. He always had God as his top priority. Conversely, why do we sin? Easy answer. Because in the moment, something or someone else becomes our top priority. So the first lesson that the wise men teach us is that we must seek Christ as they did. Seek him while he is near, and he is near. And we must continually seek him and worship him. The second lesson that we glean from them is realizing the joy 
of worshiping him. These guys had a difficult journey, suffice to say, right? They came from a long ways away, don't know how they, they possibly managed to eat and you know, find some place to sleep every night, you know, all that. We, we don't know. They had a difficult journey, though, and if you were to portray the Christian life as a journey, you would say, yeah, it's pretty difficult, too. Uh, you know, people want to think that the Christian journey is, you know, straight up the mountain, but it's not. It goes like this. You go into valleys and you go up onto mountaintops and you go into valleys and up on mountaintops and it's like a roller coaster ride. Life can be full of pitfalls and hurdles and trials and difficulties. But Jesus is worth the journey. Jesus is worth it all and then some. And there may be seasons in life when we don't understand why we're in a valley. We just don't understand and, and we're tempted to lose sight of eternity. We're, we're, we're tempted to lose the eternal perspective. We'll see things in light of the present, you know, instead of in light of eternity. But we have to understand that one day, when we stand before Jesus, it's all going to make sense. He's going to take the blinders off of us, and it's all going to make sense. Our fellowship with Christ is both a present and a future reality. For now, we see and we understand dimly. And if you struggle to find joy in the journey, remember that Jesus is not only the destination, but he's the way. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. And remember this, the harder the journey the harder, the more, the more difficult, the more trials there are, the hungrier you'll be for heaven. And the more glorious it'll be to arrive at our destination. So look to Jesus and find joy in him. That's what the wise men teach us. Third, the third thing they teach us is that while the material gifts of these wise men were generous and, and, and precious, yes, how much more precious, how much more important, how much more significant was their heart? How great was their obedience, their, their worship? The fact that they gave generously was just a reflection of what was going on in their hearts. That's the way it works. The fact that they followed where God led them despite the difficulties, despite the long distance, that was a reflection of what was going on in their hearts. Their obedience, their willingness to follow and to obey was a reflection of what was going on in their hearts. Their worship was a reflection of what was going on in their hearts. And you know what? God is supremely concerned with what's going on in our hearts. And when we worship him, Worship him, worshiping him means just turning our heart to him and understanding that he alone is worthy. One of the great men of the Reformation was a Dutch man by the name of Wilhelmus Abrockel. And I am sure that there's a lot more phlegm in there than, than I realize, but I, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, he, he, he wrote uh, a lot of stuff, but he wrote a, a really inspiring uh, quote that I want to share with you. He said, quote, If the Lord Jesus is God, meditation upon him as such will generate great reverence in our hearts and cause us to exalt him far above everything. It will cause us to bow before him, to worship him with the angels, to honor him as the Father, he being one with him. And we will join all creatures in heaven and upon the earth by exclaiming, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Truly there is something amazing, special, and joyful about humbling ourselves before our holy, righteous God and just worshiping him. And so as Christmas approaches, I want to encourage you to remember that one of the many reasons Jesus came to earth and took on flesh was to receive worship. So come, let us adore him. Come, let us lay our lives before him. Let us give him all the glory, for he alone is worthy. 
of our worship. He's our king. He's our shepherd. He's our good shepherd. So let our worship be something that's more, bigger, greater than something that we just do every Sunday morning. Let it be a lifestyle. A lifestyle in which we are just continually turning our hearts to him and seeking him, keeping him as our top priority at all times in whatever it is we're doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being such a great God. And as we worship you this morning, God, my prayer is that our hearts will just be poured out to you. That it'll be not just because everybody else is singing and everybody else is doing this and that, but it's because we've got our hearts turned to you. And we're turning away from all these gods that are competing for our attention. God, we love you. We live for you. Teach us to live a lifestyle of worship in light of the fact that you sent your son to take on flesh, to become like one of us, to be tempted the same way we are, and yet to be without sin. Thank you, Jesus, for being our sacrifice. Thank you for taking the wrath that we deserved upon yourself, that we might be in heaven with you forever as our destination. Help us, Lord, to keep, keep that perspective, to keep the destination in sight, that we may glorify you in all that we do. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.